Hi everyone, this is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, here we are. Welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. Joined by a special guest who we've had on the program before, and we're happy to have back again. We've got Mr. Ed Rafter, and we've got our our better half of the Battery Blarney duo. I guess that's debatable, but uh, Alan complete his case for that. But uh, Alan's here to kind of lead the conversation, and we're going to talk about a lot of things. Alan, what are we, what are we going to get into today? Well, we're, a little bit of change of pace here because recently we've been talking about battery backup for many for utility powering. Uh, a little bit about telecom, and we have probably ignored UPS, and UPS is now probably one of the largest users of batteries in this country. But there, there's a lot of differences between UPSs and other types of powering, and we'll, we'll go into that. You know, differences in voltage, discharge times, whole slew of stuff. But first, let me introduce Ed. Ed and I are, I like to say we're old time friends, probably known, probably known Ed for about 30, 35 years. We have a lot in common. We're, we're both probably the same age. Ed has got a little bit of the gab in him, in him as well, having lived in Ireland. And uh, we run into each other at IEEE meetings and BATCOM meetings. And I like to call Ed a friend. And I do know he's an expert in the field we're going to talk about. So that was a brief introduction, but Ed, how about letting us, us know, let the folks know about, about your background and why, why you've got a lot of knowledge in the UPS industry. Oh, thanks, Alan. And for sure, you're one of my closest friends. I think about you often. With that said, so I've been in the industry probably close to 40 years. And when I first started, it was though I didn't realize it at the time, it was getting close to what is referred to as the mission critical industry. That's what we term it today. At the time, it, it really was separated out into UPS application and telecom. And some of our clients were, were both. I realized at a, a, a very early point that I really needed to understand batteries. My expertise is on the AC side, whether it's standby power systems or power distribution, I I have a strong grounding there, but in mission critical, the battery is the heart of all our mission critical systems. And I knew in my heart then that this is gonna be around a while. I don't see anything that is ready to take its place. So I got involved uh, both with the IEEE and with uh, a lot of the service people who worked for the same company I was in. It was a small engineering firm out of New Jersey and they had different groups. One was engineering and then they had a battery service division. And I really just soaked it up as much as I could on the battery side, I soaked it up. And as I progressed, I never lost touch with that. If anything, I got more involved with the operation side. So I had also worked for a company in New York City, the Securities Industry and Automation Corporation, which was the data centers for the New York and American Stock Exchange. And that was on the operation side. So I, I, Going back to the 80s, I had exposure to, you know, we mentioned UPS systems, and I won't get into it too deep, but we went through an evolution there from the flooded or the vented lead acid batteries to the sealed or valve regulated lead acid batteries. And most people don't appreciate today, but that was a learning curve. Everybody thought we had the answer. We didn't. So my path because it was so closely linked to the batteries and has continued to be all these years i've tried to learn as much as i can about the batteries our clients are both 
data center centric and telecommunication. And you've seen changes there and I'm sure Alan will touch on it. That really gives you a flavor for Ed's last 40 years. And hopefully that brings us up to where we are, Alan. Well, kind of, you reminded me of something, Ed, and that's uh, exposure to batteries. In the late, mid to late 70s, I was uh, working for a company that was uh, installing equipment in Saudi Arabia. And I was sent there to supervise the installation of ASCO paralleling switchgear. So, yeah, I was, I was, I was comfortable with that. But then the, ne the next job was to install a battery. And I hadn't a clue. I was, you know, saw these, the batteries were actually dry charged, Ed. You'll understand that. And there was no electric, liquid electrolyte in them. And the electrolyte hadn't, hadn't been included. It got lost somewhere in customs. <laughs> so here I was trying to install a dry charge battery and ended up going down the, down the souk, as they call it there, the market and finding a guy that had a sign outside his door said chloride batteries. So I thought, okay, this looks good. So I went into this place and he did have sulfuric acid, oil of vitrol, should I say, which is full strength sulfuric acid. And he had a, a lead lined bath on the floor. So he said, what specific gravity you want to want? <laughs> so, so I told him and he added and some water. Actually, scared the hell out of me because he was adding water and sulfuric acid and water and sulfuric acid. So anyway, that, that's just a, a, that was my exposure to batteries, Ed. And then I, like you, I thought, boy, you know, nobody seems to know anything about batteries. So I made it my, a point to learn about batteries. And I said that one of our tasks out there was installing a telex system for the Saudi Arabian government and also some Saudi embassies around the world. And I was the battery guy. So anyway, talking about UPSs, Ed, at the time, I didn't think we had the term in information technology. I think I can remember UPSs that were, I'm talking about Lortec, if you remember Lortec, Ed. Mm -hmm. And these things were huge. You know, uh, 5 kV, sorry, 1 kVA probably, 2 kVA UPS was the size of a refrigerator. So anyway, as the data centers progressed, they come out of the confines of large purpose-built data centers at the time and come out into the networks and you had UPSs going into a customer premise. And that was a whole new game, which I'll talk a little bit about later. So Ed, so back, can you take us back to the beginning? Well, certainly. So trying to keep the focus on the, the battery side of things. When, when I first was introduced to the battery, we used to size them for 30 minutes. That was pretty common. And part of that was, well, if all hell broke loose, we want to make sure that the UPS stays online so we can either recover, figure out what went wrong, you know, why did we lose utility, and see if we couldn't recover or have enough time so that we might be able to quiesce the system. 30 minutes was the norm. And if you didn't load your UPS up too much, you could probably get close to an hour discharging the battery. And that was, again, looking back the old vented lead acid batteries. So I say that because that was my, that's where I learned right from the get-go about batteries. We also had the opportunity of working with the likes of AT&T and New England Telephone. And I got exposed to the telecommunication batteries. And one of the big experiences we had was okay, if I look at this battery, I'm looking at the plates. They were very thin in the UPS application. But then when I went over there to look at the telecom batteries, they were physically much bigger. Their, their, their voltage was nothing like the UPS, but the battery was significantly better, bigger. And if you look closely at it, you could see, well, the thickness in, in the plates is probably 
four or five times what it was in the other one. So back in the beginning, that was my benchmark. Okay, so for telecom, which was eight hours, we, we have to have bigger plates. And again, you know, over the time began to learn, well, that's what you need for a low rate discharge. In the UPS world, you're really looking at trying to back up the critical load for a high rate discharge on the assumption you're going to be transferring to generator. So just about any data center that I have worked with since the very beginning, there was always a generator which would take the place of, of a loss in utility. But remember at the time, experiencing a lot of losses of utility was was rare. I'll go to New York. New York you know, pride itself on the fact that we have a very strong power backbone here and we'll never lose power. I mean, the distribution network downtown, you know, it's it's almost impossible. And then we had the South Street Seaport transformer failure. And lo and behold, there were generators scattered all over town, you know, trying to support buildings. So again, having a battery that was robust enough to last taking you to generator was really more of a, that would be my first stop, but the battery itself was also sized to run for 30 minutes if for some reason the generator didn't start. So I'll progress a little bit forward. One if of the I big, can, yeah, sorry, please. If I, if yeah. I can intersect before it goes out of my fast, fast losing memories here, the other difference was, and, and you're right about the plates and you're right about that, but the plates were designed in such a way that they would give a lot of power for a short period of time. And the other th the thing was that with UPSs, you, you discharged a battery deeper. You discharged about 1.67 volts per cell rather than the, what had been the norm up to then of you know 1.75 volts per cell. Right, right. So th th that I found is a big difference. And we'll come into it later when we talk about some of the problems associated with putting down the reserve time, 30 minutes, 15 minutes. I've even seen some systems, they're five minutes reserved. Right. So anyway, very good points, Ed. Now, sorry for interrupting, but I just wanted to get the subtle difference between 1.75 volts per cell and voltage and 1.67, because it does make a heck, heck of a lot of difference. Exactly. And all of those points factored into one application and not so much in the other. Getting back to the evolution in the UPS world, it, many of these batteries had their own battery rack at the time. So a UPS mm -hmm. system didn't have, you know, cabinetized batteries that were a, a relatively small footprint. You had a UPS system, but there might have been a battery room adjoining it. That's when it was the vented lead acid. Now, people were looking at trying to be more space conscious because real estate was expensive. Also, it was touted at the time that, well, the vented lead acid is high maintenance. The high maintenance they're referring to is having to add water. So along comes our, our early introduction to valve-regulated lead acid batteries. And at the time, many of them used to tout them as being maintenance-free. So I was involved with a couple of projects where we were going to transition away from the vented lead acid battery and we were installing the VRLA. So the VRLAs, even at that time, they were in their own racks. It was, it was much smaller and so forth. But having come from you know, the experience of, of knowing how to maintain them, the things you watch for, Right from the beginning, we, you know, doing a test, a battery capacity test, a discharge test, doing infrared scanning, we saw problems where the batteries were, were getting very hot as we were discharging them. And then we started experiencing random failures. And again, at the time, you know, you couldn't figure out what was going on, what we came to learn and, and there were obviously those that realized this,
but the, the amount of electrolyte you have in a VRLA battery is either suspended in an absorbed glass mat or it's in a gel. And there is no more. That's it. You can't add water. You can't do anything. So we came to find out that, okay, depending on manufacturing and a number of other things, this battery isn't less maintenance. It's actually more because we found ourselves, I think we had a single string of batteries at first, and that's when we decided we were going to go to a parallel string, not so much to extend runtime, but as a, a you know, understanding if you lost one string, if you lost one cell, you've lost the string. My experience went through a series of events where we're trying to account for that. I think about the same time, I also had, you know, made an acquaintance with Glenn Albert. And Glenn Albert was providing a battery monitoring system for the customer, for SIAC. And so it was my first exposure to be able to actually watch the batteries, which was really very helpful in understanding. We weren't doing ohmic readings at the time, but we were monitoring the battery. So you could see how these batteries actually performed when we were testing. And thankfully, the customers that I have known or that who I worked with, they were very conscientious about testing. So it was actually a great opportunity for learning those things. We, again, had our first introduction to ohmic readings, and I, I think it was using the Albert system at the time. And again, you, you learned how to establish baseline information and be able to watch for it. I'll swing back over to a vented lead acid, and you expected to get at least 12 years out of the battery. And we were getting nothing like that with the VRLA batteries. So then coming up with spares, that became a logistical headache. We, we just learned early on that it, the VRLA battery is not going to be the answer we had, had looked for. So you wound up having to learn more about the battery, oversee the individuals who were doing the battery maintenance to make sure they were following what you know was considered to be best practice at the time. It was an entire evolution, as I recall, going from the venolate acid to the VRLAs. And again, I would say that I learned a lot between what I saw out in the field and then when we'd go to meetings and people like Alan and everybody who was in the, the, the IEEE ESSB, we really, we really shared a lot of information. That's one of the best things that I've learned over all these years is developing relationships so that I can learn from people exactly, okay, here's what I've got. Here's the problems I'm seeing. What is going on there? And trying to stay ahead of it. You mentioned the point about even sizing the battery. To me, it was a great shock when we went from sizing it for 30 minutes down to 15 minutes. I was shocked, but the thinking at the time was, well, if we're not on generator in 15 minutes, we got a problem. And so sizing the battery for, you know, a 30 minute or an hour runtime isn't going to answer, you know, the issues that we have because we can't fix things in an hour. We can't. So they became more reliant on the generators. And that in itself was a learning experience. And the battery sizing actually, you know, it, it got smaller. You had mentioned five-minute batteries. They're out there now of five minutes and you're on your generator or, again, what we have recommended over the years, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is if you're going to put a VRLA battery in, uh, put in a second string for redundancy. Try to do as uh, all the recommended maintenance that you can, but understand that you know sizing it for 15 minutes. You're 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 hoping everything is going to uh, work elegantly, and if it doesn't, you're going to suffer the consequences. And I have been on a number of different 
investigations after the fact where the customer had lost power. One example was a truck driving down the road and hit a power line, knocked down the power line before the generators got the start and came up to speed and close to the bus, the battery died. And it wasn't just a single cell in a single string. It had failed a single cell in multiple strings. I think, as I recall, they, they needed three strings. The, the fourth might have been redundant, but they actually lost two strings. And so their discharge time went from li literally, it, it just Im immediately collapsed. As soon as they dropped the load on three strings, the voltage started to collapse and they just lost another string, overloaded the remaining two, and they were, were done. And I ascribe that to improper maintenance. They weren't doing the maintenance they should. And oh, by the way, the manufacturer had just been in there prior to this failure. So I learned a lot of those lessons. So again, my takeaway has been trust but verify. So what is the what is it that you want to do? And how good at it are you in doing that? And try to stay on top of it. I haven't seen too many, if any, that have gone back to 20, 30 minute size batteries these days in the UPS application. It 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 seems that you know we're still, you know, more dependent on a reliable battery and trusting that we'll get over the generator in a few minutes rather than put in, you know, the the larger or re redundant batteries not even to mention the newer technology batteries that they have out there. Well, I feel like I've been running on here a little bit, Alan. Does that help? Well, I, was, I, I was going to give you a break. You know, you're, you're like me. You belong to that organization, that self-help group that we have for people that tend to talk too much. And it's called on and on and on. But anyway, you're, that was a very good summary, Ed. One of the things that, that got me was when I used to teach, I used to, explain the difference between telecom and UPS applications was that the telecom battery was sized to keep the system up as long as possible. A lot of times it was mandated. You know, if the site was carrying 911 service, you know, they had to have, depending on the jurisdiction, four hours, eight hours reserve time. Also, they, when you were sizing batteries, it was a little bit of a shock to some people because in the telecom field, we all knew how to size batteries. You looked at the fan curve or you looked at the manufacturer's data sheet and you looked at whatever end voltage you wanted and you could find out what it was in ampere hours pretty easily. The other, but with UPS, they were sizing batteries in watts, which for some people that weren't very familiar with it, you, you know, if you had 15 minutes reserve time, you know, you go and look at the wattage, but you had to do some other tweaking, you know, with the average discharge voltage rather than the beginning voltage or the end voltage. But go, going to VRLA batteries, I, list, I lived through that whole, whole mess, shall I call it. And that's why I haven't got very much hair right now. But back in the 1980s, I felt like the company I was working for, System Engineering International, I felt like we were the crash test dummies for VRLA batteries. But anyway, I blame the customers and the manufacturers. The customers wanted something that was easily maintainable, that was environmentally friendly, that was light, was cheap. So manufacturers gave them what they wanted. And marketing called it sealed maintenance-free battery. And you and I both know this only sealed maintenance-free batteries are ones that go in your flashlight or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you were right. I was involved with IEEE at the time, and I think you were, that where we come out with IEEE 1987 and 1988, where we ended up at the day and saying, there's as much maintenance required here as there was with the vented lead acid battery, flooded battery. So you're 100% correct there. But the... The other thing that we found was happening was with the VRLA batteries, 
they wanted to package them in a smaller footprint. And that was probably the worst thing you could do at the time because there was no heat dissipation. There was no natural ventilation. These things really failed, as you know, when they got hot and they dried out. You know, you said you couldn't add water. Well, I hope Pete DeMar doesn't listen to this podcast, <laughs> but that's kind of an inside joke, folks. But actually, Pete came up with a method of re rehydration, you call it, right. and where you could actually add water through the pressure relief cap of the battery. But anyway, one figure that was thrown around, and I believe it, is that if you lost 20% of your electrolyte, whether it was, whether it was absorbed or whether it was shelled, you, you lost 50% of your battery. And believe you me, most of the batteries that were out there in UPS applications, they did lose electrolyte. So I'd attribute to the early failures of a lot. And people started to pay attention. And maybe, Ed, you can tell us about some of the things. I hated the packaging that they did. I also hated sometimes where they located the batteries. And I hated some of the things that were going on within NFPA, you know, like, yeah, spill containment for a non-spillable battery, things like that. But maybe you can pick it up there, Ed, and, you know, industry was stuck with these VRLA batteries and a very few customers changed. As you say, they, you know, they might've had VR, might've had vented lead acid batteries prior to, you know, end of life of that battery. In those days as well, UPS lasted a lot longer than they did today, than they do today, in my opinion. You know, it's a solid investment. Somebody might have a UPS for 10, 15 years. But anyway, so they had no space to go back to, to vented lead acid. So they almost forced into going with VRLA. And that, you know, that was a sorry, sorry story. And that was one of the reasons we started BatCon, as you know, Ed, uh, because of the all the spear chucking and finger pointing that was going on with VRLA batteries. But I'm probably digressing here slightly. So I'll let you pick it up again, Ed. Well, thanks, Alan. So everything you say is echoing loud and clear with me. In, in the UPS world, in fact, I can even remember there was a period in time where they're actually putting the UPSs out on the race floor. You wouldn't do that today because it's much too costly to be taking up valuable space in a, in a, a data center, in a data hall that is really intended for the equipment that's doing the work. Whatever the business objective is, that's what the real estate is about. But we did have a time there where they were actually putting UPS modules out on the floor. So the, the migration away from having a battery in a separate rack, which I think way into the deployment of these enclosed battery cabinets, I would argue you have to maintain it. You have to keep an eye on it. And so I'm speaking as a customer here and as somebody who supports the data center side of things, these things have to be maintainable. You have to be able to look at them. Looking at them was half, more than half the battle. Going from the vented to the VRLA, now you can't look inside, but you still got to open it up. You got to look for the obvious things. And if you kept it out on a, on a rack, uh, you would... You know, you still have an opportunity as you go down, you, you, you get your sharpest people to keep an eye out for certain things. And it would essentially probably save you in the long run because you can call maintenance whenever you spot something that seemed a little out of the ordinary. That began to diminish and going into cabinets became more the norm. I have pictures still where we would do a survey where literally, if you could get two fingers between the top of the battery post and the shelf above it, that was a lot. And and think about it. These these are electrified posts, but they, they sandwiched them in there that tight that you couldn't even look in to see what was going on. You couldn't put a flashlight at it to be able to see. So again, your, your, the recommendations we made in IEEE about quarterly maintenance, I would be, you know, very upfront with you that 
was a, a recommendation that often got massaged. You'd have deferred maintenance because you, you, you really couldn't afford to take the UPS down and do a, 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 an intensive maintenance. I, I remember, I think it was the first time I heard somebody got, got killed. It was, it was one of the manufacturers, one of their people working in a battery cabinet. You know, I had known of people getting, gotten hurt working on, on the racks, the open racks, but a lot of that was, you know, just operator errors, the only way I can describe it. Trying to do maintenance inside these cabinets, it was, it was very tricky. I mean, it, it really was. So from an owner's perspective, trying to keep an eye on those things was just harder and harder to do. What I will say is that taking it back to my experience with Glenn Albert and the building, the battery management system or monitoring system that we had at SIAC, we started to see, well, where, where Albert came back with a monitor, they, they had to set that aside for a number of years, but then they were able to incorporate the internal omic readings in with that. And so I, have always advised if you're going to put a VRLA battery in, particularly where it's going in a cabinet, you need to have a battery monitoring system installed. It needs to be able to do ohmic readings. And you mentioned about, I, I just need to pause on that. So for the audience, you're wondering why am I calling it ohmic readings or ohmic testing? Why aren't we calling it internal resistance or impedance? That was a hot topic. There was a lot of resistance to calling it any one thing. But I do remember that we settled, agreed on using the term omic because as a group, they we wouldn't nobody wanted to sanction resistance or impedance or it it it, it wasn't doable. And I say all that with a, a chuckle because here was a tool that really helped us in managing the battery, but you know, people had a bias for any number of reasons. And so they were, you know, re reluctant to label it any one thing, but I would say that was probably the godsend from a UPS owner's perspective, being able to monitor it. Now I will throw another wrench at it and say, okay, then it becomes as good as the, the individuals who are monitoring the monitor, those that are looking at the data, you had to know what you're looking at. Hopefully you understood the, the whole subject, but we would often run across operations people who had the responsibility who really didn't know what they were looking at. Maybe that, that alarms, alarm levels were triggered and they didn't know how to, to respond to them, what to do. So I would say even when the monitor with internal omic readings was offered to us, there was a learning curve there. And I think some of that continues to today is that we're still, as, as an industry, people in the data center world are very mindful of you know, what the business is about. And it's about uptime, 100% uptime. So more today than even 20 years ago, they're much more in tune with doing the right things. I just see some of it has, has shifted a little bit now where, again, we, we let's talk about batteries holistically in a UPS world. I'm sure you're familiar with the Open Compute Project. There's a project out there now, and I don't mean the money or the waters, but how things have gotten confused cabinets now that go out on the raised floor where you install IT equipment, you can have them equipped with batteries. So, you know, there's, there's a little bit more confusion about, okay, are we dealing with a centralized UPS or with distributed UPS? And if we do have distributed UPS, who's monitoring the batteries? How are we keeping an eye on those? And I came to find out that as an operator, particularly in the co-location world, you're responsible for all the batteries that are in there. Even if they're in somebody else's cabinet that is sitting in, you know, 
a, a cage out there, your responsibility is is at least knowing what you have. So I I I see a trend where you know maybe the enterprise and co-location still have the centralized UPS, but I think we're morphing here, Alan, to some new phase where we're going to have maybe different types of batteries distributed throughout rather than centralized. So again, I, I needed to throw that out there because I think some of that is upon us right now and where we're going through these new uh, technologies, these new chemistries and, and what they mean. We're also seeing where you're dealing with, you know, quote, data centers that live out on the edge, right? It's no longer just a single enterprise data center. You might have these string of data centers scattered around. And, and some of them, there, there may be very little there at all. I'm going to take a pause here because I'm sure you weren't expecting me to go down this rabbit hole. Well, of, co of course I was, Ed. That's why we invited you. But uh, once again, you're talking about the ohmic measurements brought back memories. I wish I had a dollar for every phone call I got from the various manufacturers lobbying for ohmic, ohmic values. So, and our dear friend Zen was, was one of them, really. But uh, the, the other thing we, <clears throat> we haven't touched upon is the development of UPS itself, you know, the technologies. You know, we went from the whole tried and trusted double conversion ferromagnetic-based UPS to other technologies. But the thing that was happening at the same time, and I learned a lot about this from going to IEEE meetings, was that, you know, with telecom, we were pretty lucky. Utility were pretty lucky. The charges that were being used there were very well regulated, were very well filtered, very little noise on the system because of some of the restraints placed upon it by the telecom users, the old bell companies, where they had to restrict the amount of noise that was going on to the telephone lines. But UPS has started being developed. And, you know, I must admit, at one time I worked for a UPS manufacturer and I was horrified at some of the things that were going on. I probably got almost got fired two or three times for speaking my mind. But one of the things I found out was that the the chargers in the UPS or the charger, they weren't very, very well regulated, but weren't very well filtered. And there was a lot of noise being placed on the battery, ripple. And uh, not only from the charger, but I found out, you know, a lot of that where you had a sort of a step wave inverter or something like that, pulsing, pulsing inverter, the, the noise was coming back from the inverter as well, I mean, placed on the battery. So uh, one of the, uh, when we come up with the uh, IEEE 1491, you're talking about things you could monitor on the battery. And I think Tom Rulon was working with me at the time. We, we come up with a separate annex to talk about ripple and voltage. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I haven't seen that improve, quite honestly. So, you know, UPSs were killing the batteries, actually, in, in my opinion. And uh, I don't see it, I haven't been involved with UPSs probably for about eight years ahead. So I don't know if things have changed or not, but you're hundred percent right in new technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, my own opinion is I'm not a lithium fan. I, they're using a lot of lithium badges for UPSs now. I don't think that's the way to go. And, but there's some other technologies coming out very, very promising. And just to mention one zinc, zinc batteries. I think that's got a, a place in the system. I like what you said about you know, distributed, localized UPS batteries. We have things like network UPSs. You know, you're not relying on one particular data center. You, there's a problem there. You just like the old telecom days. You know, you'd you'd find another path. So maybe you can touch on some of the things that I brought up there. I think I brought about two or three different things. Ed. Yes, you did. So you remind me to get back into the details here because some of it I was glossing over. So speaking of the UPSs and how they've changed, it's been pretty dramatic. The electronics inside of the UPS has gotten much more robust and it's able to do a lot more 
than it could back in our day. So having an input transformer back in the day, you took your 480 volts and you stepped it down to something that fed a rectifier that established your, your string voltage. Well, without the input transformer, which you mentioned it yourself, the electronics can actually maintain a much higher string voltage. So I think I would, I can call to mind the manufacturer you worked for. I, I remember coming in contact with it where they had a positive leg and a negative mm -hmm. leg of the, of the battery. And the center point was literally the neutral. And I had, <laughs> I had such a hard time trying to get my head around this. But you know the, the concept is you needed both the positive and negative to create a, a full waveform. Fine. Well, there was sorry, Ed. There was an, another reason that was to get get around the NFPA seventy high voltage. Yeah. So they were doing that. They were putting four eighty volts on a one side, and then the center tap, and then four eighty volts. So you come up with a nine hundred and sixty volt battery. So. so that's pretty ingenious when you think about it. Yeah. But we are at a place now where you can buy a larger string voltage or a higher string voltage battery. The electronics is, 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 is come so far now. I will share with you that if we start looking at UPSs and their client types, the, the, the data center world specifically, a lot of those people that operate those facilities are a little bit sharper than the average. So I have a, a number of customers right now who would like the option to either go double conversion or to do line interactive or echo mode, whatever words you wanna use. There's a place for that, for, for echo mode, because you're bypassing the input, it's gonna operate much more efficiently. But again, there's, there's trade-offs there because now you're operating literally on a, a a conditioned bypass source. But many of them would say, I still want to maintain my UPS as a double conversion. And many of the UPSs, particularly the larger manufacturers, you can decide which way you want to go. You can buy a UPS that is set up as an either or. You could set it up and run it line interactive, or you could switch over to echo mode if you chose. So that is a big evolution there. And of course, uh, now we're talking about bi-directional inverters. So instead mm -hmm. of having a very large, substantial rectifier that's got to not only serve its critical load, but keep the battery charged, and you assume the battery's been fully discharged. So it's it's got to be size quite big. You can do this now with a, a, a rectifier inverter that essentially will keep the battery charged. And then if you're in a discharge mode, it will be the path for discharge current from the battery. They've become a lot more, I mean, talk about space. You mentioned it. I remember it was the first GE UPS I saw down in Oklahoma. I couldn't believe this thing for, for a couple of hundred KVA. It took up this whole room. I mean, it was humongous. And now we're down to, you can buy a megawatt UPS and add as many cabinets on as you want, but essentially like two, three sections and that's your UPS. And you add on your battery, depending on how much runtime you want. It's, it's amazing how we've engineered these things down, but the batteries are still, and, and I'm gonna echo your sentiments on, the rush to lithium ion, I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's not as if we were, you know, in, in a really bad position and people, you know, were, were, were struggling with this lead acid battery. I really don't know that there was a, 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 a motivation there because for a number of reasons, and you can, you know, handle this any way you want. I, I don't think it's as environmentally friendly as everybody would like to believe. And I, I think there are trade-offs that people are being forced to accept. And we're still trying to engineer it, basically. We're in that beta stage. 
So the rush to it, and many of our customers still use lead-acid batteries successfully. It's you, a lot of it's to do with you know, politics, financial engineering, and this environmental push that's going on at the moment. Although uh, I don't want to go on about that, but no. the, uh, what, what, I don't know how much time we have left, but what I'd like to do, okay, maybe move on, Ed. I used to follow, still follow the Uptime Institute, which I think, I know you work for them, so you know better yes. than I, but I think uh, did a great service to the industry, not only the Uptime Institute, but some other studies on, ba on battery reliability, battery, shall we say, you know, to, anomic measurements, you know, the where they were going, and they've improved a lot. But I remember back, I think it was 1990, I, I wrote a paper uh, for an organization called Bixie, Building Industry Consulting Services International. Right. And actually, George and I presented at a conference, and we essentially, the name of the paper was, batteries are supposed to keep you up, but they're going to let you down. And we, we, we were whistleblowers, essentially. And they, you know, was told, people what was happening and at the conference most of the manufacturers were there and I, I fully expected to get, get dumped on not one manufacturer contacted me except one and they wanted a copy of the paper but anyway we've come a long way since then but the so is the ups industry in reliability so i used to get confused as hell ed but you know well what's a three nines data center what's a five nines data center so maybe you can take us back to the beginning of that and how the uptime institute has been one of the drivers in recognizing ups failures which by the way every study i've seen uh says most outages are called by caused by power outages which are caused by batteries i don't know if that's the case ed but the way i read things that's what it says to me yeah. including the latest study which came out, I think, about a month ago. So we had that things hadn't changed. It's still the batteries are still the Achilles heel. Yeah. Yep. So if I might on the on the Uptime Institute side. So uh, using nines for our audience is 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 a a, a statistical reliability metric, if you will. So if you look at it in manufacturing, for example, you manufacture uh, a thousand widgets, widgets, then statistically, you know, let's say 99% of them are 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 going to do fine. You know, there there there's there's no infant mortality beyond maybe one percent. When you start talking about reliability, now you start getting into, okay, we're going to quantify the data center system. So it's not just the UPS, it's the system. It's, it's looking for a metric approaching 100% uptime. So 100% uptime is an amazing guarantee if you think about it, because all the various parts and pieces that are in your electrical distribution and your mechanical distribution, if one of those things failed, and you didn't engineer its bypass, you know, in the beginning or its failure in the beginning, that could be a gotcha. So if, if you look at the, the Uptime Institute tier standards, for example, it, it starts with a, a single power path, single UPS, single generator. It moves up to the next, which is redundancy, where we're recognizing, well, one of these UPSs could fail, so we'll put in two modules. Then you start getting into three and four, which now you're talking about, I want to be able to maintain each and every point in that system. It's, it's not just the big stuff, but even valves and switchgear and so forth, up to four, which is I want to be able to survive at least one fault. And again, each one of these is built on each other. So I say all that, because I agree with you for a while there, people were looking for like five nines, 99.999% reliable. So can't guarantee you 100%, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you five nines. And it's statistical. 
And when you're doing a statistical analysis, you can do it at a various on a various piece of a system and say, okay, that system in itself will have a certain reliability. Now, when you, you magnify that by an entire data center and all the various systems that are engaged there, that's pretty, that is pretty ambitious. It is. However, we do have a lot of data centers that can rightfully say that in spite of anything that has happened internally, we've managed to provide power to our customers and we are at 100% reliability. The thing is that I, I heard there and I just wanted to clear the air, Uptime Institute some years ago took issue with trying to use statistic and analysis for you know, the uptime of a data center. Those who've worked and lived and breathed in a data center realize that Murphy Law is alive and well. And if it can go wrong, sooner or later it will go wrong. So they, they rather not speak to how many nines, let's say a tier four will give you, but the fact that that is a higher level of reliability in your desire for 100% uptime. Does that make sense? They, they are not. And if you've read it recently, I'd be interested to see that because they have tried to stay away from using the terminology five nines, four nines, because it's a statistical method. And when you're looking at a data center environment, you also have to, you don't want to lose sight of the fact that stuff happens. And, you know, Murphy's Law being what it is, you mentioned how the batteries was probably still the number one gotcha. I'm reading more and more where individuals are, are a very close second, if not overall, probably approaching one of the biggest risks, because we have people there that aren't 100% trained up on all this. They lack some of the experience. So people are also tagged there. They talk about vendors as another one. I'd have to look at the latest article to refresh my memory here. But there, there's other contributors to that reliability, which are or lack of, which is, is, you know, more than a statistical model. It's about, you know, unforeseen consequences where somebody comes in and being unfamiliar they throw a wrong button or a wrong switch, or they don't follow the mop. I mean, that's one thing about data centers is very religious to written methods of procedures, all right? You follow the procedure. You don't deviate from the procedure, you follow it. And, and that way, as you go through it step-by-step, step, there's a check and balance against something that can go wrong. But human, that human that equation, is, is a very big part of it. So I just wanted to clarify that. And, and so I'm not sure where you wanted to take this, but reliability as five nines go, I would say Uptime Institute has shied away from that in, in recent years and that they are more, you know, in describing the, the improvements you get if you follow their guidelines, and we all do in the industry to some greater or lesser extent, we've taught ourselves, we've taught ourselves what you need to know. It isn't as if there was some grand revelation by some wizard. We have learned often the hard way. What is it that we need to do? And they have built on that. So again, I just wanted to make that point. And if it is new information, please let me know what you're looking at, because I'd love to see where they're saying something else. I, I certainly would, will add. This was quite recently, in actual fact, I've got a little paragraph on, on our latest newsletter, which is coming out shortly, talking about this, five nines and what have you. But it may have been from, I know Lieber did a lot of studies, you know, people are still hanging on to, they do. to that. They do. So. so that I so to your point, the manufacturers still speak to it. I just wanted to share with you mm -hmm. that the Uptime Institute 
because it's confusing and you can have a false sense of comfort that they don't try to, they, they steer clear of that anymore. If I'm wrong, please educate me. Ed, you're very seldom wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Except in your choice of beer sometimes. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. They, but, you know, you're talking about human error. Every time somebody mentions that, I cringe because I was in a data center in Alpharetta, Georgia, where we had to take the UPS offline. So we called in the technician from the UPS manufacturer to take it offline for us while we were going to switch over to a generator. So and behold, this particular data center, I won't mention any names, but that Saturday morning, they were conducting a nationwide car auction. And uh, this evidence is a big deal where all the buyers of cars and everything else get on this one call. I think it was pre-Zoom days, but you get the drift. And all of a sudden, silence. Silence is not something you want to hear too often in the data center. No. So uh, drop the complete UPS. Oh boy, I've never seen such panic. I've never seen somebody fired so quickly. It was horrendous, but human error, you're right there, Ed. So uh, no, if, if Murphy, as you say, my mother's name is Murphy, but uh, hopefully <laughs> I don't get too, too many of the genes, but, uh, but her, Murphy's alive and well. So I don't know if we want to wrap this up. I just got one quick, quick question, Ed. I, I have a lot of respect for the Uptime Institute, just the fact that you work for them, but how is, how is the Uptime Institute funded? Well, the fourth Uptime Institute has been acquired by 451 Group. So they have their, 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 the business vision for Uptime Institute going back to the beginning was about providing an opportunity for data center users, owners, operators, where they can come together and they can speak openly and freely uh, and you know, essentially share experiences. That has, has grown over time. There's services involved. There's the tier certification process. They have a number of, of services now, but getting back to the Uptime Institute and the organizations, the members of, of the Uptime Network, they're, they're paying members. So they are data center people who pay a fee every year to be a member of it, but they get the benefit of data they get the benefit of those get-togethers where they can share information. Uh, and, and they have also got these other, you know, service, for example, gap analysis. So if I wanted to understand what have I got in, in my facility here, come in, take a look at my UPS and, you know, my batteries and chiller plant and everything. And let me know where I'm missing meeting this target that I want to reach they'll come in and do things like that so it's 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 a, a consulting business in a way but 451 group also does a lot of international information gathering this is even in our time in the last 25 30 years i mean a world community now is is there i mean there there's data centers all over the world and Uptime Institute has been one of those that is internationally recognized. So they have the opportunity to provide service to companies in, in the Far East or in Asia, Europe, Africa, South America. They're, they're, they're all over the world. So their, their income stream comes from the services that I'm describing here. I guess it's a little bit about EPRI, you know, the Electric Power Research Institute and, and Bixie. So anyway, I think we need to wind this up a little bit. Really a pleasure having you on, Ed. I feel that I haven't brought up half the points I wanted to, and I'm sure you feel the same, but a lot of good information and a lot of hopefully information that's useful to our, our listeners, because it's not often we touch on, on UPSs. And as I said, they're probably one of the biggest users of batteries at this point in time, and probably will be the users of the new technologies that are coming along. 
that are a lot safer than lithium-ion. So thanks again, Ed. So David, do you want to shut us up here? And maybe we can have Ed on another time to talk about some of the other things that in the UPS industry that's going on. So thanks, Ed. Absolutely. David. Yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for, for taking time out to be with us. And, and Alan, thanks as always. Great conversation, guys. Thank you. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.